0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the third episode of rank the president, our other historical show slash podcast where we rank the presidents. Uh, this is our third episode. And we're up to the fourth president of the United States, James Madison. In this video, we'll be discussing the final two founding father presidents and their first ladies. So James Madison, and um, James Monroe, both of whom are Democratic Republicans. So first, mm-hmm. we'll start off with some background on Mr. Madison here. So James Madison was born on March 16th, 1751, another Virginia colony president. And he lived his whole life in Virginia. Um, he actually lived a rather long time. Uh, up to this point, he, he died at the age of 85, which obviously did not allow him to outlive John Adams, who lived to be 90. And he was close to Jefferson, who lived to be 83 years old. Uh, but suffice to say for his time and for repeated essentially accusations against him if you'd like to call him that that uh he was not in peak physical health for most of his life often was seen as sickly and short despite his great intellect uh that's a pretty long life uh so as i mentioned he's a democratic republican like his successor as president and his forecomer in thomas jefferson and his first lady dolly madison as we'll get to later is arguably more famous than him some might say definitely more well liked around Washington than him in terms of the uh, relationships with everybody in the community up to that point. But to start with, Madison obviously exceptionally intelligent, exceptionally well educated. Uh, he became proficient in math, geography, and Latin at an early age, essentially up at the uh, up to the age of sixteen, where he attended Princeton, which at that point was called the College of New Jersey, and he continued his studies of Enlightenment political philosophy and the classics there. Uh, ultimately graduating with high marks um, and he graduated in just two years from Princeton sped up his education enough to do that and um, then the Revolutionary War came along and he took a seat on the local committee of safety as it was called which was a pro-revolution group uh, overseeing a Patriot militia and he was actually commissioned as a colonel of the Orange County militia uh, and served second in command to his father. Um, he was delegate to the Second Continental Congress following the signing of the Declaration of Independence and prior to that had served in the Virginia House of Delegates. And he is now remembered predominantly as the father of the Constitution, though he always showed disdain for that title in his life and was quoted as saying essentially that the Constitution was a product of many brains and many hands and that he did not want credit for it simply and solely attributed to him, even though at least looking at the Bill of Rights and the first 10 amendments and everything preceding that in the Constitution largely was based on his drafts. Uh, So I'll throw it to either of you. Do you have any thoughts on pre-presidential James Madison?
1: Uh, He's certainly an interesting interesting figure to be sure. I mean, just his his co-writing of the Federalist Papers alone, which are probably one of the key... Key text people look to when it, when looking at the Constitution, what it means, and also the role of the debate between the, the Federalist and the Anti Federalists at the time. Uh, definitely an interesting fellow. I think you could make an argument that his that his pre presidency was more interesting than his presidency, historically speaking. Uh, I mean, very 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 accomplished person, qualified, the sort of person you would expect to become a president. I would think. And Sarah.
2: Well, obviously you mentioned about his health. You know, this is the last episode I'll be mentioning Hamilton because it's the last one where a president is mentioned. He's seen continually coughing in it. And I think it was more that he was, okay, maybe he was ill, but he was definitely a hypochondriac. I think, you know, the rumours may have been true, but he was scared of every illness. Though to be fair, back then everything could kill you, so it's quite understandable. But looking to his mid-80s back then is very impressive considering you know mortality rates in infancy but yeah as eric said his pre-presidency was definitely more interesting he was extremely academic as were pretty much all the founding fathers you know contrasting or you can compare him to jefferson and adding his intelligence i believe that he was thomas jefferson was his he was a legal apprentice to jefferson it was had him or monroe and i can't remember which one but i'm feeling it was madison it was, it was- That was a
0: connection. I think think it's interesting based off of your point on education and what I mentioned earlier, looking at the early presidents at this point, you really were, um, with the exception of Washington per se a very scholarly bunch. They were a scholarly bunch of founding father presidents, and I don't think you saw that continue on into the 19th century for very long. And that's not to say presidents uh, like George Washington or Andrew Jackson were not smart, but these weren't individuals who necessarily were learning Latin at the age of 11 and then graduating Princeton in two years, like James Madison had or someone with the breadth of interests from linguistics to religion, to constitutional law and government like Jefferson had essentially a true Renaissance man far after the end of the Renaissance. So I think it's really interesting to look at just the intellectual experience that went into becoming president, because if you look at Jackson, he was criticized for being essentially one of the few candidates in the race up to that point in 1824 who didn't speak at least one foreign language. And granted, mm-hmm. he didn't have the diplomatic experience with someone like John Quincy Adams, but still.
2: But his Jackson, who was like orphaned during the Revolutionary War and nearly died in smallpox, so I think one can forgive him for not, you know, going to school.
0: No, I know, and that's the dichotomy it, you saw develop.
1: And it is worth noting here that you know the the three presidents that we've talked about in a row will be Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. These are the three founders of the Democratic Republican Party. I think I think Madison, in many ways, is a better version of of Thomas Jefferson, specifically on the issue of slavery, among other things, uh, in terms of his attitudes towards it. But the the string of ideological Behavior cross, these are the three most Democratic Republican of the Democratic Republican presidents. This is the high period of the Democratic-Republican Party, and kind of saw the end of the, the Federalists. So it's kind of interesting, you know, looking over where these guys come from, where it goes, is you know, when when Madison enters, um, he it's still a competitive country. It's still a federalist and, and democratic republicans. By the time he leaves office, uh, the Demo- the Federalists are basically done. They're not really uh, power. And then by the time uh, Monroe leaves office, the Federalists don't exist anymore. Um, you have well, the national to taking it over.
0: The demise yeah. of the Federalists, as we'll get to, was precipitated by one elephant in the room war. Uh, but mm-hmm. we'll get back to that. So I think now we should talk about the path that led James Madison to the presidency. Uh, so obviously after playing a critical role in the drafting and the establishment of the Constitution. He served in the US House from Virginia for well over a decade, about 13 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then after Thomas Jefferson ascended to the White House, he was selected as Secretary of State. And he served as the Secretary of State under Jefferson for all eight years of Jefferson's presidency. And he accumulated a ton of diplomatic experience. Uh, He was Secretary of State when the 1807 trade embargo was issued. um, And he essentially oversaw continuing tensions on and off and to various degrees of brewing or seething between France, Great Britain, and the United States. And I think that leading up to the War of 1812, that was really invaluable experience that he had accumulated as Secretary of State that certainly helped him, um, especially given that uh, it certainly helped him when he ascended to the presidency, which he did. Uh, in the 1808 election, which the uh, Democratic Republicans won despite relative unpopularity and general economic downturn in the United States following the trade embargo that had been established mm-hmm. under Jefferson's administration, although it is notable that that trade embargo was ultimately uh, repealed before Madison came into office. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I it, want to talk about the uh, 1808
1: election... Oh, sure. Uh, it's it's definitely following up on 1804, which remains the largest popular vote landslide in, in, in American history in a competitive election. Uh, the Federalists nominated the same candidate, Charles Pickney. Uh, uh, Ch- sorry, Charles Pickney. He did a little bit better than, than this time, but again, than, than 1804. But this is again kind of you see the Federalists retreating back into this New England north, northern oriented party, the only states they managed to win. We're all in New England, along with Delaware, which is not a New England state, but has pro-business sentimentalities traditionally, and then a couple of votes in in North Carolina. But you look at the rest of the country, from New York all the way down to Georgia through the new states of of Kentucky and Ohio, or Ohio in particular is is the new state at this point, um, it it becomes very clear that the the Democratic-Republicans had captured uh, a, a stronger coalition nationally. Than the federalist had which was again limited to that northeastern corridor specifically new england but even further not necessarily even all of that if you look at the next election um, you know uh, the next election massively going to be more competitive than this i think we'll mention we'll mention that but we're we're still looking at it, at it coming off of jefferson a very resounding win for the for the democratic republicans here mm mm-hmm. uh yeah so
0: um, do you have anything else to say about the eighteen oh eight election? Me? At all? Anything like that that you wanted to add?
1: I mean, it's it's a pretty all things considered, it's a fairly boring election in terms of of where things go. I think it's the 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 more interesting one is eighteen twelve, where the where the Federalists had a much more credible candidate and came much closer to winning, uh, to winning the presidential election. But in eighteen oh eight, you're still dealing with with the coming off of Jefferson, you're dealing with this north-south, but specifically New England versus the rest of the country divide on economics, the issue of tariffs versus the issue of of not having tariffs, the issue of allying with Britain versus allying with France, the issue of all the sorts of stuff is building up, and I think the Federalists were very ill-suited to to benefit from this, especially with the addition of new Western states like Ohio, which at the time was considered a Western state or a Northwestern state, um, that would – ultimately come states, the Democratic Republicans would win. Um, The federalists were, were running this urban oriented campaign. The Democratic Republicans had kind of high ground everywhere in the South and in the rural, the rural new states, the mountains. So it's an interesting election somewhat, but, um, but, you know, in in terms of, in terms of competitive elections, it certainly wasn't one. Again, the only states that, that Pickney won were, were Massachusetts, which at this point had all of Maine as well or all of the United States controlled, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Delaware, and then a couple of votes from North Carolina. The rest of the country all went to, to, uh, to Madison.
0: Yeah, and it's also an interesting fact for those who may be bored by the mundane nature of elections that um, when he was elected, and he remains to this day the smallest president in stature and uh, weight overall, or you could say the most diminutive president, he was only 5 feet 4 inches tall, and his weight averaged 100 pounds or so during his life, uh, which honestly made him significantly smaller than any of the presidents that had either preceded him or come after him, especially uh, when you look at someone like George Washington, who for his day was quite large in terms of stature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's,
1: that's quite a contrast right there. I mean, if we're talking about height, that's smaller than Napoleon for, for comparison here. Napoleon was 5'6". Uh, this is, this is yeah. smaller than that.
0: Mm-hmm so he took office in 1809 on march 4th succeeding thomas jefferson uh first we'll go over his cabinet if i can find the list of the cabinet here that i had oh hold on a second yes so his vice president was george clinton and george clinton up to that point was the first governor of new york and had served extensively in that role And there were actually some within the northern faction of the Democratic-Republican Party that wanted Clinton to actually beat out Madison and take the party's nomination, quote-unquote, at the Congressional Caucus meeting they had every four years in Washington to determine the nominee. It did not pan out, and he succeeded Jefferson. And um, George Clinton was vice president for his first term. Uh, Elbridge Gerry, who we all know, or Gary as his name was called back then, we know for the (laughs) gerrymander. Although only Thaddeus Mrozek still calls it the gerrymander. His secretary of state was Robert Smith in his first term, but more prominently it was James Monroe who was secretary of state for his whole second term, which served as his springboard to the presidency. He had a ridiculous amount of treasury secretaries and war secretaries four in total although his last treasury secretary william crawford went on to serve uh in the monroe administration uh his secretary of war it's very difficult to say he he literally had six five sorry five secretaries of war one of them was james monroe but their tenures were generally short-lived Uh, His final attorney general was Richard Rush, was arguably the most famous of the bunch that he had, the three there, and then finally, uh, he had three naval secretaries at this point, a new branch that had come into play as a result of the naval action leading up to and during the uh, War of 1812. Um, During his presidency, Madison uh, filled two vacancies on the Supreme Court, uh, and he appointed about 11 other justices during his tenure which for a two-term president now has seemed ridiculous given the hundreds of justices that get appointed to lower level judicial positions but at the point uh, at that point it was pretty reasonable so overall given they were from the same party madison and jefferson were largely seeking the same agenda so madison's administration pretty much represented a continuation of the jefferson policies he called for lower taxes, he wanted to reduce the national debt, he certainly was more of an agrarian man than a city man if you look at the way that his political philosophy worked, and likewise he would have believed in lessening government's influence in the lives of the individual. Um, In fact, there was a lot of conflict with Madison and Hamilton over the financial plan because madison was concerned that hamilton's plan was very much too federalist and would result in all of the money the wealth going to northern bankers and northern aristocrats uh which he viewed as harmful to the agrarian interests of the rest of the united states uh likewise we saw the emergence of the bank debate in the united states that would come to dominate the jackson administration Uh, because the bank's 20-year charter was scheduled to expire in 1811. So that's when it popped up as an issue. Um, Initially, his cabinet member, Gallatin, wanted to renew the bank's charter, uh, but Madison didn't really have an opinion on the issue at all. And eventually, uh, the bank kind of moved out of importance in his administration and kind of once again was kicked down the road, like kicking the can down the road. Uh, Another thing that happened... Um, ultimately it didn't happen until the, um, Monroe administration, but there were initiations of talks with the Spanish and the America, uh, the United States over West Florida, because they were beginning to debate over how to best acquire that territory for the United States following the $15 million Louisiana purchase that had been partially negotiated. Uh, by Madison. Madison helped really reassure Jefferson that it was constitutional, that it was a good thing, even though the Constitution didn't discuss land acquisition. Uh, Although ultimately, it would take General Jackson moving into Florida in 1819 and the subsequent Adams-O'Neese Treaty during the Monroe Administration, which finally ceded Florida to um, the United States. But really, really, the big thing we need to get into to discuss is what took up the bulk of the administration's time when Madison was in the White House, and that was the War of 1812. The lead up to the war and the subsequent three and a half years of conflict that lasted until 1815, he waged a close re-election campaign during this time. But there were two main issues, essentially, that led up to the War of 1812. British impressment of American sailors and merchants uh, and the seizure of freight, the disruption of trading across the Atlantic, and that had already essentially been brewing tensions between the British, the French, and the United States in this triumvirate, because they really had not had good relations with either of the two nations since the revolution uh, two and a half decades before. And the other was uh, agitation on the Western frontier, because settlers had now effectively moved up to the Mississippi River. And um, the British, allied with certain Native American tribes, and convinced them to conduct frontier raids and attacks in an effort to deter settlement and form as a sort of indirect conflict, uh, without being directly aggressive against um, the Americans up to that point. Uh, so the French the French were the first to really address the trade issue on the Atlantic, and they announced a policy uh, that would allow for any American ship that visited a British port. And ultimately, the this led. Uh, in 1809 even though the trade embargo was gone to the passage of the non intercourse act which effectively said uh, we'll trade with Britain and France but one of them uh, essentially whichever one comes to us first whichever one agrees to trade with us safely first that's what we will stick with and we will ignore the other one so since the French took this as an opportunity to better their relationship with the United States This really didn't play out well for the British when you're looking at the relationship between the British and the United States up to this point, plus the impressment, plus uh, the resolve of the United States to keep European powers, as we'll find out in the Monroe administration, out of North America. uh, It really began to boil over, and ultimately Madison asked for a war declaration, even though he viewed the United States military as somewhat woefully incapable of fighting the british and until the end of the war to some extent it was they invaded washington dc uh during a superstorm there was an earthquake on the western front along the mississippi river where indians allied with the british were fighting american troops and at the same time there was a hurricane and a lightning storm that all converged on washington dc on the very night that the british burnt down the white house and damaged the capitol building so that was pure chaos up to that point and certainly the low point for American resolve during the war, given the ridiculous weather phenomenon that had overtaken the British during their front. Uh, And we'll talk about the resolution to the war later, but first to get some commentary on the war, um, I think I'll start first by pointing out one of the major conflicts. The war was essentially the demise of the Federalist Party because New England Federalists that benefited uh, from trading with England saw the wars permanently and rightfully so jeopardizing their ability to conduct free and fair trade with England. And it got so bad to some point that Federalists in some circles were proposing a New England Confederacy and secession from the United States. And although these points really did look somewhat good at the low point of the war in its middle, by the end of the conflict, it is it effectively... Served as a victory ground, resolve for the American people, ushered in the era of good feelings as Madison was on his way out of the presidency, and essentially completely destroyed the Federalists, who after that victory were perceived as having been anti-American and anti-government. So, Sarah, do you have any thoughts first on the War of eighteen
2: twelve? Oh, lots well, thoughts. It wasn't the white. It wasn't called the White House until we burnt it down. I'm just going to point that little one out. And when we <laughs> made it the Capitol, they did a mock Senate thing, which I find so petty, so hilariously British. Um, well, obviously, I think I think you know this relationship between Britain and America at that point. America, Britain started to focus on India and sort of further in the world. I think I discussed this that the revolution. I think Americans seem to think the British care more than they do. It's usually just a joke to us, and we, we don't really care too much. War of 1812, I'm sure most Brits couldn't tell you what it was. So, again, considering all the perils we had abroad, minor detail in our footnote. But yes. Um, I think it was definitely humiliating for the Americans on the fact it was their capital that was being attacked, as it would be for any country or capital being attacked any incident would be quite humiliating. So mm-hmm. I'm sure that was definitely humiliating for the Americans, not maybe so much in numbers, just in sheer... You know, it was kind of propaganda victory for the British there. Um, obviously, there's a the famous story of Dolly Madison taking the famous Gilbert um, portrait of George Washington when she left the white house however that is disputed it's believed either she um ordered a slave whose name escapes me to take her or the slave did it himself well that's um a propaganda line that the americans use so sort of i think it was great for propaganda purposes that war
0: and do you want to talk more about dolly madison before oh, i move on
2: i thought you would never ask so um dolly madison and um, was one um dolly Payne. and uh, she married a man I think it was John Todd, who was a lawyer and had two sons. However, one son and her husband died during the Philadelphia Yellow Fever epidemic. Um, she was left destitute. She had to sue her brother-in-law for the $12 she was owed because obviously back then women didn't have any control of finances and ended up living in a boarding house. And one day, um, Aaron Burr decided to introduce her to um, James Madison, thinking they would be suited. And... Um, dolly madison did marry him because she needed financial security and a husband but the two did genuinely care for one another despite the large age gap um her son john was a bit of a sod as we would say racking up gambling debts and she ended up going in debt after he died because you know gambling debts alcoholism but she was sort of the original jackie kennedy she was an extremely extremely capable hostess at the time where that was basically the only function of the first lady she would get opposite um, parties of opposite beliefs like the democratic republicans sat together at events which actually went well because she knew how to schmooze extremely charismatic and probably brought up her husband's popularity i don't i think a first lady if she's popular that really helps her husband So she's going and telling all the wives of cabinet members oh my husband is so great they're going to pass it on. So she's one of the most well known. Dolly became a popular name for girls. The fashion was copied. So yeah, she was the original Jackie Kennedy. Extraordinary intelligent. Not not just a pretty social face. She knew exactly what she was doing diplomatically and was pretty much the very perfect spouse of James Madison, who was a bit down and a bit dull and only minded. And
0: hadn't. she it was kind of funny because if you look at it, she was a good four or five inches taller than him and weighed more than him too. So he would have been a stature different <laughs> him as a couple, but she also was younger and she ended up living, didn't live as long, but I think that living to 81 was still impressive. And it's always fascinating to see, those pictures from the early 1840s and 50s on the early cameras of those individuals that we would otherwise only know by painting. I think you get a lot more of a picture of who they really are with a picture than a painting.
2: She was actually a matriarch of them even later on. um, During the um, cannon explosion which killed our Um, Julia Tyler's father eventually led to um, John and Julia Tyler marrying she also introduced Martin Van Buren to um, Angelica Singleton who would later become his wife and would be the um, hostess as Hannah Van Buren had died many many years ago so she was a society matriarch long after she left the White House so she left a legacy beyond her. And she was first lady for uh, Thomas Jefferson when his daughters went there because his wife had died years later. They were very close friends. So she was more than first lady. She was a hostess
1: as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Eric, do you have any thoughts?
1: Uh, On the war or on uh, Dolly
0: Madison? On the war.
1: Yeah, the war is... We were talking about this before the show. It's kind of a weird war in hindsight here. Like if you ask most Americans about the war, they'll know the White House was burned down. They probably won't know about the thun- about the storm, which is ridiculous given how insane it was. That's literally
0: the most interesting thing in the fact that yeah. there are simultaneous earthquakes on the Western Front.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like – yeah. People at the time were saying it was divine intervention, although it's pretty clear it didn't actually benefit either side. There, had there a literal was really tornado, tornado running
0: through – there were accounts, because there was a tornado going through Washington while the hurricane was landing, and there were accounts of literally a British regiment got struck by lightning or something. As it was
1: going. <laughs> yeah, but they could tell you that. They could tell you about the Battle of New Orleans, which actually occurred after the war had ended. Oops. Yeah. And then they could probably tell you about impressment, which was the – if they really know their stuff, they'll, they'll know about impressment and what, and what the general thought was. But it's worth noting, of course, I mentioned the 1812 elections were interesting. Go ahead and talk about that. Yeah, I mentioned Dewitt Clinton as a as a Federalist nominee. He really wasn't. He was a Democratic Republican, but he was basically running a fusion sort of ticket with Federalist support, mostly from the North. Um, tactics, tactic support. So he was running as a Democratic Republican with the support of the Federalists, quietly, who didn't officially run a candidate. And he almost won on the an anti-war ticket. He only lost the popular vote by three, and he came uh, within several states of winning. He didn't. Uh, if he had flipped a larger state, he probably could have won the election. So that's an anti-war ticket right there. Obviously after the war started, it's the War of 1812 after all, uh, that was basically the death knell of the federalists. You look at the next election, which we mentioned, we'll talk about with um, 1816, very, very different scenario. But you know, it's really one of the stranger wars, I think, in history. And it's worth noting, of course, that while the British did burn down Washington, we also burned down the capital of Upper Canada. This is a retaliation for that. Um, so I think if actually there were several uh, – one little fact here is that there were several paintings of, of King George and his wife, which were taken by British troops and now reside in the Parliament House in Bermuda. Um, at least one of them does. the One of them remains on the premises there, and I believe there's another one of his wife that's, that's somewhere else. But it's very interesting. You see these sort of – I know I mentioned, I'll, I'll, I'll probably mentioned at some point, but North Carolina during the Civil War our copy of the bill of rights was stolen and did not emerge for another 150 years. So who knows what treasures were sort of taken from, from the white house and from these other buildings in the, the 28 hours or so that the British occupied the capital of the United States, the only country to ever do that uh, is the British. And the only country that will ever do that, I think personally. (laughs) And
0: ultimately the war was concluded. The federalists died patriotic fervor was building up as the era of good feelings began after the 1812, after the 1816 election, as we transitioned into the Monroe administration. And although the Treaty of Ghent was the peace treaty technically signed before the end of the Battle of New Orleans, that battle still bolstered Andrew Jackson's national image, and ultimately, one could argue, was pretty much one of the Uh, reasons that precipitated his election in 1824, above all else. So certainly fascinating when we look at that. But that really brings the largely foreign policy-based administration of James Madison to a conclusion. Certainly, I think we all agree his early career, especially with the Constitution, especially for people like me who really are interested in the history of the Constitution and its current interpretation was more interesting. Uh, But with that, I think we'll go around the horn and rank the Uh, Madison administration before we go to Monroe. So, Sarah, what do you say?
2: I'd probably give him, you know, an A minus. He was definitely a good president, albeit he's only really remembered for being a founding father. You know, he didn't do anything extreme, which to be fair for a president is a good thing. Not having a crazy administration probably benefited him. Uh, I don't think he sort of made the impression that maybe Jefferson did and later maybe Andrew Jackson, but. It was a two-term president, pretty stable, so yeah, A-minus, I think, you know, four.
1: Error? Mm -hmm. Uh, He's an interesting one to rank, because the War of 1812, uh, obviously it went the way we wanted it to go, it was basically a status quo was the result of the treaty, with the exception of the United States getting West Florida and, and the ultimate expulsion of natives from their homeland is, is another result of that. But in terms of overall results, it's hard to argue he wasn't an effective president. Um, you know, holding off the British is a pretty big deal, um, even if it wasn't like a status quo resolution. I would probably give him a, a B. Uh, I think you know it's hard to give him a, like an exemplary grade, something that's really, really high up there. But in terms of early presidents, he's certainly in the upper tier of of those early ones. He's not a uh, not a, a William Henry Harrison or a or a Zachary Taylor or a, you know a, a Franklin Pierce or something like that, as we'll get to later. He was he was a pretty good president, I think, all around.
0: I, for similar reasons to the proposals or of the uh, propositions you both made, would also give him an A. As a president, uh, his domestic policy was not was relatively unimpressive. It was largely just a continuation of the Jefferson administration's policy. But ultimately, he was a wartime president, and one might argue he was the first real wartime president uh, in American history because the Quasi War never actually resulted in a foreign invasion that destroyed, um, effectively destroyed the U.S. Capitol, literally destroyed the White House. Uh, but with that, we'll move on to the Monroe administration. So James Monroe was born in 1758. He was not as lucky with lifestyle and he lived only to the age of 73, died of tuberculosis. Uh, he was another democratic Republican president, educated at the college of William and Mary, uh, served at the battle of Trenton during the American revolutionary war, where he was wounded in action and ultimately became a major in the army and is pictured uh, in the capture of the Hessians at Trenton Painting with General Washington. Um, He actually sold his original plantation uh, to enter politics. Uh, But again, at this point, when we're looking at um, his beliefs on slavery, he was, like Jefferson, believed that slavery was wrong. But at the same time, uh, he believed that emancipation would cause more problems and that slavery was really just so interwoven with Southern life that you could not just get rid of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And I do um, actually have a point to make there real quick before you continue, which is I think is really interesting on the slavery point. Um, this is kind of a weird movement today, we think of it. But the country of Liberia in Africa, its capital, Monrovia, is named after James Monroe. Why is it called that? Because many of the, res- the residents of Liberia were former American slaves, freed slaves, who moved to Liberia as part of a recall, a, a repatriation program, for lack of a better term, that was supported by people like Monroe and, and uh, Madison. They felt that uh, the, the, black, uh, the black Americans could not stay here, that that wouldn't work, and that they should send them somewhere else. Uh, it, it's a ridiculous idea in hindsight, although black Americans – ancestors of black Americans – Continue to govern Monroe, uh, Monroe uh, not Monroe, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Liberia for a century to come as part of the Whig Party, the True Whig Party is what it was called. So that that weird little legacy of this strange movement, which they both supported, were members of the American Colonization Society, as it was known, uh, did ultimately lead to a country being created and, and being governed by the ancestors of Americans for quite a long time. I just figured I'd mention that while we're on the topic of slavery, because it's it's one of the weird distinguishing points to think of, of that era when people were trying to figure out what the answer was, they weren't quite willing to accept the end of slavery, but they also seemed to realize that it wasn't a, an institution that could live and exist with a republic and with the, the principles of liberty, and so it was a weird attempt to compromise the two. And
2: fun fact, my father had two presidents in Liberia. So so <laughs> it's in there.
0: Fascinating. We were going to mention that, or we are still going to mention that later when we get to foreign policy accomplishments, but um, Monroe was a US senator from Virginia. After that, he was the United States minister to France and then the United Kingdom. He served two stints as governor of Virginia before becoming temporary secretary of war right around the end of the War of 1812. Uh, And then finally, under Madison, served for roughly the entirety of his second term and a little bit of the first term as Secretary of State, which continued the precedent of Secretary of State's ascending to and capturing the presidential office. So he became the fifth president on March 4th, 1817. The War of 1812 was over up to this point, and the election he had previously won against New York Senator Rufus King was the last in which the Federalists would run a candidate. He would become the first president since Washington to run effectively unopposed in his 1820 reelection because the Federalist Party collapsed as the era of good feelings uh, that would last with some bumps in the road, like the Panic of 1819 and the debate over the Missouri Compromise for the entirety of his presidency. Uh, besides that, um, as I mentioned, the Panic of 1819 was largely caused by Western land speculation, and it was the first real strong economic downturn in American history up to that point certainly similar to the downturn that had happened after the trade embargo in 1807, just worse. Um, It also saw the uh, uh, acquiring of West Florida, securing the entire state of Florida for New Spain, and ultimately this would eventually only contribute more to the expulsion of Native Americans, specifically the Seminole tribe out of Florida and the Cherokee and Choctaw tribes out to the indian territory and in what would become known as the trail of tears under the jackson administration um, the missouri compromise was wrought in an effort to quell the debate over slavery and the qualms of southern states it didn't do any actual solving to that problem really just kicked the can down the road to future generations but uh, it kept the balance between free and slave state influence in congress by admitting missouri as a slave state and simultaneously admitting maine uh, as a free state And the compromise which Henry Clay in his early career played a part in, even though he lived to see it fall apart, effectively meant that no state, no land formed into a state west of Missouri's, west, or I guess I should say northwest of Missouri's southern border could harbor slavery. So everything south out to the Pacific coast, slavery would be justified there. Ultimately, this decision was duly overturned first by the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1853 and then by the Dred Scott versus Sanford court decision as part of its uh, three-part ruling in 1857, but lasted for a long, long time. Um, And as Eric mentioned, when we're looking at foreign policy, one of his big accomplishments uh, dealt with the creation of Liberia, which still exists to this day, but... um, Mm -hmm. If we want to look at his cabinet as president, like we did last time, Daniel Tompkins was his vice president, and uh, John Quincy Adams, an incredibly experienced diplomat both before and after his service as Secretary of State, uh, facilitated uh, that role essentially for all eight years of his presidency. Uh, And it eventually, whether by controversy or any other nature, uh, that you would prescribe to it allowed him to win the presidency in 1824. You can go watch our campaign trail episode on that election for more information. Um, William Crawford was the secretary of the treasury. John Calhoun was his secretary of war. William Wirt was his attorney general. Um, and essentially one thing that's really fascinating about the Monroe cabinet is compared to other two term presidents like Jefferson or Madison, Monroe's cabinet was very, very consistent. The, um, appointees that had been confirmed to some of these top positions by the Senate effectively stayed with him for all eight years of his administration with very, very little turnover except in the secretary of the Navy position. And that was something that I think people liked as a little bit of stability. Even someone like Crawford who frequently fought with Monroe, almost got into a fist fight with him at one point, uh, facilitated and executed his role as secretary of the treasury for all eight years of the administration. If you look at judicial appointments, he appointed 21 justices to the lower courts, uh, and he conducted a recess appointment to one seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, Obviously, he had to deal with the Panic of 1819. We discussed the Missouri Compromise already. It was a time of democratic dominance. One of the other things that uh, would become a hotly debated issue, particularly into the 1820s, was internal improvements and whether or not they were justified. So at this point, the United States was well into the construction of a national road. And by, well, close to the end of the decade, it had already linked the Ohio and Potomac Rivers. So Congress, during his second term, passed a bill authorizing tolls to finish the road. Um, But Monroe opposed this because he did not believe in conducting public revenue without the consent of the public. To facilitate the construction of internal improvements. Ultimately, though, that would become a largely Whig policy if you want to think about it that way, in terms of promoting American improvements first the National Republican Party and then after that the Whig Party as it developed in the 1832 election. If you look at foreign affairs, um, there were two treaties that were wrought between Great Britain and the United States: the Rush-Bagot Treaty regulated. Um, essentially naval action, naval armaments on the Great Lakes since the United States and Britain shared them as dual waterways. Um, And it effectively removed all troops from the borders on the northern and western, or not western at this point, but the northern front between British North America, which was basically Canada, and the United States. And um, the treaties eventually set the border in stone between Canada and the United States, uh, which fully ensured that... All of the Western land, except the Oregon country up to this point, was uncontested uh, in terms of its uh, belonging to the United States. The Seminole Wars and the acquisition of Florida under General Jackson, we discussed. uh, Largely, Jackson took a lot of matters into his own hands with the acquisition of Florida, sometimes outright disobeying General Monroe. So the final thing that I'd really like to talk about before I throw the presidency to you guys is obviously what's uh, possibly the most important part of the Monroe administration, and that's the Monroe Doctrine, even though it would not become known as that until about a decade and a half after Monroe's death. But uh, Monroe became sympathetic to these Latin American revolutionary movements because much like the United States had thrown the shackles of Britain off of its own hands, um, these countries in Latin America were attempting to overthrow Spain and establish similar republics uh so he recognized all the new governments uh after bolivar effectively led them to get rid of spain in south america argentina peru colombia chile and mexico and that plus the loss of florida signaled the end of spanish dominance in the americas and it resulted in the monroe doctrine in which adams really encouraged monroe really encouraged him to say no to a British proposal, the British had been proposing that the United States follow in the footsteps of European powers and ignore these other nations in the sphere of influence. But Adam said no, and that, that would not amount to anything. So in really the first ever step America had taken up to this point uh, toward becoming a somewhat great power, although obviously not there yet, he formulated the Monroe Doctrine, which essentially told European countries to stay out of the American Hemisphere, the greater American Hemisphere, and that the United States would support these puppet republics uh, in their own march toward independence in South America and in Central America, and that these were areas where America alone would have influence. And it even included telling the Russians to effectively uh, avoid going further down into Canada, even though the United States did not, at this point, control uh, the then-Russian-occupied territory of Alaska yet. But mm-hmm. that's the presidency. So, Sarah, what do you think about James Monroe? Am
2: I okay to talk about his first lady? Go ahead. Well, Eliza Cartwright-Monroe, She was. I think it's a, um, a similar situation to a lot of presidents, that there was an age gap. Um, he first saw her at a theater and thought, oh, she's all right, and then they ended up marrying Unfortunately, Eliza Cartwright-Monroe was quite a sickly woman, so she spent most of her time upstairs at the White House, leaving her duties to to her daughter, also named Eliza. So she was not a particularly influential first lady, but again, another one where there was an officially a first lady. But on to um, Monroe himself, again... Not really much happened with him. He's sort of the last of the founding father's generation. And again, I think think it's why he's remembered, along with the Monroe Doctrine. So again, nothing too exciting happened during his presidency. You could maybe chalk Florida up to Andrew Jackson more than you could Monroe, mainly because Andrew Jackson did whatever he wanted in that station. Um, Again, fairly academic not maybe as much as Jefferson and Adams, but yeah, last of the founding fathers. So he sort of represented the end of the Virginian dynasty. From then on, we would see much more of other states. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And
0: Eric, what do you think about the administration?
1: Uh, I think this is actually a, a severely underrated administration in terms of its importance. Um Think about, if you're in if you're in Britain, if you were to say the the era of Elizabeth or the era of Queen Elizabeth or the Victorian era, even some of the modern like the Edwardian era, all these terms have meaning. Like that's the rough equivalent of of that. The era of good feelings is basically just the Monroe administration. it's basically it from beginning to end. That's the era of good feelings. It's the closest thing we have to a. I mean, you can say the Reagan era or the other things, but like in terms of a cohesive movement where kind of everything was like there wasn't really any opposition. To him, I mean, even in even in even in his final election, that were Federalist electors actually won a statewide electoral electoral ticket in Massachusetts. They won the popular vote. The Federalist Party, without a candidate, won the popular vote in Massachusetts. All of those electors still voted for James Monroe. Um, he, he basically he, he ran a very effective presidency that didn't do much to inspire opposition. Uh, it did keep a lot of the stuff the Federalists wanted. It was able to. Bring a little bit of unity after the war. Um, I think, in particular, the Monroe Doctrine is really important. And also, it's worth noting the British were actually in favor of the Monroe Doctrine to some degree. Their priority at this point was not in adding additional colonies in the Americas; it was in preserving uh, free trade, international waters. That was a big part of of the era of, of British dominance was having open seas that could be traveled through. So, having the Americans stepping up and saying, "This is our hemisphere." Europe, you should stay out, we're not going to kick you out, but we're not going to cry for you if you get kicked out by the people that you're you're governing governing over. The UK was actually pretty much okay with that in terms of not having to worry about this hemisphere anymore, because they could focus on other areas are more lucrative, like, for example, India, that's a much more lucrative area to control than the United States at this point. So I think really, this is a pretty important presidency. It's worth noting, of course, that it, the era of good feelings is kind of a pejorative term in hindsight because while there was a lot of outward-facing unity, especially after the war, internally you're seeing the the, uh, the Democratic-Republican Party face a crisis where they basically have all of government um, with no opposition, which ultimately leads to one thing, factionalism within the party, and then the party actually fracturing, which we see in the 1824 election where their four candidates were all Democratic-Republicans. And then ultimately out of that wreckage came, um, you know, came the modern two-party system or, or at least the first iteration of it with the Whigs and the Democrats. Um, so I think this is actually a really important presidency in hindsight, especially in foreign policy, even to some really degree not. more than Nafson. Um, Just in terms of the impact of the Monroe Doctrine is cited to this day. Uh, Donald Trump cited the Monroe Doctrine during his administration and in, in supporting um, you know, anti-communist movements in, in, in Latin America – uh, how many doctrines, foreign policy doctrines from the 19th century, the early 19th century, can you honestly say the the, the United States is still somewhat adhering to? Uh, I would I would wager there's basically one. It's, it's the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, we, we've kind of basically kept up our end of the deal. This is the American Hemisphere. Europe is pretty much all out except for a couple islands in French Guiana, and we just kind of do what we want. Like mm-hmm. it, it's hard to it's hard to say in hindsight that that this this wasn't a really important administration, even if I think as a president, he's just above average in terms of what this signified providing this pr- providing the solidarity after the war, moving forward into America becoming a global power. I think a lot of it does start here in the Monroe administration.
0: Yep. Uh, so ultimately I think we should issue our ratings on Monroe. Uh again, I would have to give Monroe an A. I don't see any problems with his administration. It's certainly other than the Panic of 1819, which wasn't necessarily caused by him, a good president domestically, ultimately, I think he was a good man. And when it came to foreign policy matters, I think that the way he handled with the advice uh, of his Secretary of State, John Quincy Adams, European intervention in the North American sphere, I think, like Eric said, that continues to influence us even to this day. Uh, Eric, what about you?
1: I would also give him an A. I would give him a little bit of a higher mark than Madison. Not that I think the two presidents are a lot different, but it, I think Monroe was able to get more of his domestic policy agenda passed and have a longer-term impact in the government and on American policy in general than than, than Madison did. But I think they are both pretty good presidents. I think Monroe's the better of the two, so it's not by much. If it, it'd be closer to an A minus for for uh, for Monroe. And an or sorry for yeah for Monroe and a, a B plus for Madison, but I would give him an A in the scale.
0: Mm-hmm. And Sarah, what about you?
2: I'd, I'm going to be a little harsher and say B plus. I think he was a good president, but the difference between him and he didn't do anything great. I mean, you can obviously maybe include the Monroe Doctrine. But that was mm-hmm. a lot of work of John Quincy Adams. So I don't think he did anything spectacular. But again, he didn't do anything terrible. He had pretty dull administration, mm-hmm. which is probably yeah. the best you can ask for.
1: Yeah. Like, at this point, we're basically, at this as a country at this point, we're kind of getting into a period of either calamitous presidents who are horrible or really important presidents. Like, that's basically what the United States is getting hey, up to. So it's kind of odd to see a president right here, which is the one that inspired no real opposition of any kind throughout his term, pretty much did what he wanted and then kind of left and then just watched his party implode. It's just kind of a, a bizarre presidency, but I think a good one in hindsight. Oh, Harrison, you're muted.
0: So with that, I think we'll wrap up this episode of Ranked <laughs> the presidents. We finally concluded our founding father's era and we move forward boldly into a new decade and really a new era that will ultimately lead all the way up to the Civil War and the antebellum period. So thank you all for watching. Thank you to our guests as always, and good night.